You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall, editors of the Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM. Well, welcome back to the Batuta Advocate Radio Show, recording live here in downtown Batuta. You're joined by myself, Clancy Overall, editor of the Batuta Advocate, and Errol Parker, editor at large. How are you, Errol? Good, mate. Spent the weekend skiing up there on Mount uh, Ramienko, mm. you know, the premier ski resort in the Simpson Desert. Obviously, the snow wasn't as good as you get down there in, uh, you know, in more cosmopolitan parts of the state like Stanthorpe and places like that. But, you know, it's good for what it is. Yeah, look, you better get it in now, actually, listeners, you're skiing, because we've just passed the winter solstice, according to um, all the photos coming out of Tasmania. Winter solstice is over. Uh, Dark mofo is over. And it's uh, the days are only going to get longer from here. Mm-hmm. So, um, yep. All I can say about that is, thank God, that's the last one because that's just a, a festival of sin and mm. terrible things that people shouldn't really be Yeah, into. I mean, Melbourne is starting to look at different approaches to lockdowns mm. now because so many people missed out on getting down there to Tasmania to yep. dip some vagina yeast mm-hmm. bread into the pig's blood fountain. And, uh, yeah, lots of I, sad yuppies in Melbourne this week. <laughs> Dark mofo might live on to see another week, but... Nevertheless, it's winter, which means we have the winter codes of football for everyone to be distracted by. But that's not to say that the arts across Australia haven't got other things on outside of um, the the satanic Dark Mofo Festival. There's the uh, Archibald Prize, the Win Prize, the Sulman Prize. We interviewed Abdul Abdullah a couple of weeks back as a former finalist. Today we've got another one with us. And for the first time ever on the Batuta Advocate Radio Show, we're interviewing both an artist and his subject in the shape of... Uh, Craig Foster, the subject. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, oh, a pleasure. It's good to be here with the great Julian Ma. Julian Ma, the artiste. Thank you. Mm-hmm. It's a pleasure to be here as well. So you never entered anything for Dark Mofo before, Julian? Nah. No. Mm. I wanted to go, though. I can see you're a bit, I'm a bit bummed I couldn't go. I got a special haircut. I was all ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> Had your trench coat. Yep. Now, tell us a little bit about what you do as a painter. We've got, obviously, two different disciplines here. You're a... Four-time finalist of the Archibald Prize, and we've got uh, 29 matches for Australia for the Socceroos. Nine goals as well. Nine goals. Yeah. Nine goals yep. in Craig Foster. That's a pretty good average. That's that was yeah. all right, but I, I, I got most of them against the Pacific Nations. <laughs> American Samoa. <laughs> we played Vanuatu once. I think I got four goals. And, uh, and Stevie Corrigan, who is the coach of Sydney FC now and a legendary uh, Socceroo, he, uh, he kept saying to me, they're going, give me the ball, Fozzie, give me the ball. <laughs> I said, mate, I've got to get my numbers up, you know. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, Pacific Nation. Um, I, you know, they all turn up. Everyone, it's a well yeah. game, mate. Oh, totally. Those were in the years when we, used, we were in Oceania. So yeah. Before they went into Asia. So it was a good period for the goal scoring. <laughs> <laughs> and Julian, you, uh, how would you describe yourself as an artist? In one word. In one or- word, Painter. Painter, painter. Yeah. That's pretty much all I can do. Yeah. Color in. Pretty good at coloring in. Yeah. Twenty years of practice, starting yep. to work out what I've got to unlearn to get better. Yep. And and that's it. That's well, that's what I do. Well, we want to talk to you guys today because Julian, your portrait of Fozzie, known to us as Fozzie, uh, <laughs> Craig Foster, it's an interesting one because you've actually painted him before. I did. You not as him. not as well, but not as well. Is, is that what it was? Yeah. Or? Well, I don't know. See. I thought I'd done a pretty damn good painting the first 2019. Round. Yeah. I met Foz and I was like, Foz, let me have a crack at painting you and get you into the Archie. Mm-hmm. That's my way of supporting you. You're a legend and I want to help out somehow. And that's all I can do is paint. So let me have a crack at getting you in. I told him, look, we're not going to get in, but 
I think he thought, oh, okay, Jules can paint, he'll get me in. Mm. And I smashed out a huge work. Like I went, I think, 16 hours straight doing the face and as good as I could paint. And I think Guido walked past and said, that's a ball terror, man. That's going to get in. Mm-hmm. The first time in my life, I like, actually thought, oh, man, maybe he does have a pretty good chance. It's not a bad painting. Yeah. I make some pretty bad paintings and I, I know when they're bad and when they're good. And, yeah, they didn't get in, yep. which was uh, – we were a bit like, what happened? What happened with that one? I'm like, Fozzie, yeah, you can't, you can't – You took a knock that year. Yeah. Can't win them all. No, you was can't win them all. Was that 2019? Yeah, it was last year. Yeah. And then it was – I had that painting sitting in my stacks. No one ever saw it. Like two-metre painting of Fozzie. And every night when I went home, there was Foz looking at me, <laughs> so handsome and hopeful and kind of optimistic that we were going to get in. And I'm like, fuck, I let him down. I let him down. <laughs> and then so I'm like, dude, you're going to – then we became better friends through the course of that year. And um, I'm like, let me have another go, dude. Let's just keep going until we get it, get you in. Yeah. And it was much better, actually, much much nicer to paint him second time around yep. because oh, I didn't have to impress him. Yep. Probably weren't going to get in. Way less pressure. Yep. Made, actually made way more poetic painting. Probably not as much painting skill in there, but way more of what I call like X Factor and poetry. And way more fuzzy in there. Way more fuzz. Mm-hmm. Fuzz just looked tired and exhausted. Mm-hmm. And what are you trying to say? Yeah, that's where. That's why I watch what, what happened to you over a year or two. You look pretty good today, though. <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah. fresh. It's yeah, fresh. Yeah, fast. Well, it has been. <laughs> it has been a big year. I, I want to get back into the Archibald um, in a minute, Jules. But you, you did mention just then it's been a big year for you, Craig. I would have said you had some big years when you first entered the public life. Um, you would have had some big years playing football for Australia. Mm-hmm. You would have had some big years during that glow-up era mm. of Australian football, but. The last year seems to be like, you know, it may have been a bit more taxing than some mm. of the stuff you've done, you know, on the football field anyway. Yeah, it's it's really different in every way, really. Something, you know, the last couple of years has been kind of um, just going into a completely different field. Mm-hmm. Uh, emotionally, it's very different because uh, sport thinks that it's in a really tough environment, the challenge of trying to win games all the time and, this concept of professionalism, you know, trying to win trophies is difficult, no doubt. But then moving into an area where you see all this harm has been a real adjustment, meaning. And social advocacy can be done in many different ways. Athletes and sports, but sports people in particular, you know, we, we like to lend our name, our brand, our image. But we always maintain this distance. Uh, and professional sports people largely because, A, they don't really get the opportunity or time to understand the issues and meet enough of the people Mm -hmm. that they're advocating for or the programs that they support. Uh, But as a retired sports person, you know, I had opportunity to really delve into the issues themselves Mm -hmm. and meet the people. And once I met the people, you know, whether and and at at this point in time it's largely refugees and asylum seekers are in trouble, then it it really changes your life. Do you think there was a particular moment where the blinkers came off? Um, it was over a period of time because I was involved in Indigenous kids, uh, refugee kids, mm-hmm. and programs that were working with these children on the ground. And so, probably ten years ago, uh, I was involved with UNSW. They've got a, a program called Football United, and it was recently arrived refugee children from war-torn zones, primarily. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them, so um, Sudan, South Sudan, Iraq, and most of them had lost their parents. That's why they were here. And usually 
many, if not all, of their siblings. So you're talking to kids who had seen their parents quite often hacked to death. And they were refugees. Mm -hmm. Uh, They'd come on the UNHCR program. And you kind of go to it with, you know, the best of intent and start working with them. The the program was to utilise football. So let's say utilise sport to assist with the socialisation and integration of refugee children. Mm -hmm. So in other words... You've come to the country, you've got no limb to hold on to. Everything in your life is gone. And the only thing that we, you connects you to your new environment is your love of this particular sport. Mm-hmm. That's one of the beauties of, you know, as you said, the, the world game. So, you know, you start to then provide opportunities for them to play, to understand, to meet other kids, to come out of their shell, to talk about. Then you can provide psychologists to them and, and everything revolves around this one love that they that exists for them. And I started to talk to them and then one kid, I remember many, many years ago, said to me, I said, why, why is it that this is important for you? And and they're very honest, you know, it's, it's unfiltered. And he just looked at me and said, well, because my parents are dead, my sister and brother were killed in front of me and he said the only thing that still exists for me that I can hold on to is this football Mm -hmm. the ball and I started to become you know closer friends with those kids so you kind of go from just supporting lending your name to then knowing the people Mm -hmm. and it pulls you in yeah and being activated that's it. I mean, and, and I think that's the path. And because that's been my journey in many uh, areas of social justice, that I continue to try to do that for everyone else. I yeah. believe that almost the most, there is an extreme element in all societies, but even the most ignorant or belligerent or bigoted people mm-hmm. can change their views when they sit across the table and learn about the other person, yep. the other, right, in inverted yeah. commas. And so much of what I do is about putting the two uh, people together. So can I just ask, with the you know, your supporter base or people who know who you are mm. in the public life, the bloke that mm. asked you to sit down for a portrait being one of them, mm-hmm. and of course us editors of the Batuta Radio, we know Fozzie, we know your work, particularly on a football field. Mm-hmm. Soccer seems to have a big uh, following amongst first, second gen Australians. Always has been, you know, it's a, it's a you know popular with migrant communities. Have you seen that kind of activate your work and your talk mm-hmm. of asylum seekers and refugee issues? Is there been a little bit of, uh, you know, it's actually activated a lot of people have come from other countries who realise how they're not too different. You know, that's the, the, yeah. the deck could have been marked against them. Well, it goes both ways, right? So they've activated me and I can help to activate them. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I often say, not so much publicly, but I'm kind of like an Australian wog mm-hmm. because I came out of the country, New South Wales, which was very monocultural, you know, Anglo-Celtic like me. And I went at 15 years of age down to the Institute of Sport and I landed in multiculturalism. Mm-hmm. And the most... So wait, just, you're not of Southern European background? Possibly? No, so I'm Anglo, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay, I've, um, you know, I thought you may have been Yeah, many way. people think, yeah. That's <laughs> kind of why I fit in the game so well. You know, like, are you Italian or, you know, what are you, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's not a tan, is it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, you've got the vernacular as well, growing up with yeah. all the Italian and Serbian kids, I'm guessing, uh, playing yeah. football, yeah. Well, yeah, at, at mid-teens, right? Mm. So prior to that, it was all, everything was Anglo. You know, it yeah. was tea and scones yeah, and yeah. It's, it's jam and yeah, yeah. you know and it's uh, it was all this stuff up yeah. in the country and uh, and we didn't have many uh, ethnic communities we had a very in Lismore where I'm from yeah. we had yeah. a very small Italian 
community, and there there is a place there called Little Italy, yeah. um, you know, close to the coast. You know, and we had some Greek families in town who, who were lifelong friends of mine and others, but not much. Yeah. So basically, I came to multiculturalism and multicultural Australia in, it was like deep immersion, full immersion. Yeah. You know, it wasn't just a stepped approach. I came from out of Lismore into football. Yeah. A real football. And then I went, at 17 years of age, I played for Sydney Croatia. That was, <laughs> you know, yeah, out in Fairfield, right? Yeah. That yeah. was Croatia. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I loved it, but it was very different. And in many ways, it was confronting, challenging. You know, they spoke Croatian. You know, yeah. the food was Croatian. You know, the, the, the team was largely Croatian. And it was very, very new. And, and they weren't long out of war either, no, a lot of those that's right. people. Yeah. Yeah. No. Exactly. So they were still fighting, you know, with the Serb club down the road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, and you've, and yeah. you've picked your side. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I played for the Serbs later, you see. Yeah. You know, but this yeah. is kind of the beauty of Australia, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is why I, I always felt I could play a bit of a mediating role is mm-hmm. because I'm, you know, I'm the white Anglo-Australian dude whose family come here, you know, 230 years ago. Mm-hmm. And all of these beautiful communities come, but many of them still have enmities between them. Yeah. And I kind of existed always in the middle, seeing both sides and also understanding and talking to them about the beauty of what Australia does offer to them. Mm-hmm. And but certainly the first generation immigrants understand that very well yeah. because they came from these they, – they fled, yeah. right? So they very often feel very deep attachment to what Australia has done at the same time as they you know, have, have great – attachment and love for their their history and their their culture so i kind of came towards them and they also come towards australia right and and so my own feeling is that the true concept and nature of multiculturalism is that we are meeting in the middle Mm -hmm. and that's why it's not about you know the white australia policy and everyone has to come here and be a rah-rah you know what was seen as and so then we talk today about, you know, what is Australian, you know, and, and still people, if you look at the popular media, when we say, oh, Australia or Australian, people, I think, still in their mind see it as a white, probably yeah. Anglo, you know, female yeah. or male. That's changed socially, but it's not changed so much culturally yet. Yeah. And so I'm, in, you know, I'm committed to all of those things because I'm very much in the middle. I'm part yeah. of that multicultural community. Meeting in the middle as opposed to assimilation. That's it. Everyone, yeah. everyone kind of exactly. melting pot. Yeah, and in the middle in the sense that don't lose your own cultures. Mm-hmm. Don't lose your own language. So I sit on the Multicultural Council and they talk about what is a statement of social cohesion. Mm-hmm. So what I'd like to see, and, and I don't expect this is going to happen anytime soon, but that English is a connecting force, mm-hmm. but you know that our statement on social cohesion or, or if you like, national values, uh, as far as you can define them, means that we should say that we are a multilingual nation, yep. Yep. but English is the national language and the connecting force. Yeah. But you have to, you know, this is the beauty of spending 18 years at SBS as well. So I've gained incredibly from my connection and and love and involvement in multicultural Australia, yeah. as much as I have from the wonderful background that I have. And, of course, then we have First Nations revolving around that, or, or, or I'd say underpinning all that as yeah. well. And you're probably a bit more familiar with, First Nations community coming out of Lismore than you were with any of the communities That's true. you met. That's very there. true. Yes, over over four percent up there. Yeah. Uh, you know, Lismore, Grafton, Kempsey, mm-hmm. you know, Taree. 
But also, I, I knew Charlie Perkins, yep. you know, he was a football player. Uh, John Moriarty, the first Indigenous Australian to play or yeah. to be selected for the Socceroos, a close personal a family friend of mine, and I sit on his board of his foundation. So, you know, this the intersection between sport and all of these communities and the, the ancient history of our nation is, you know, kind of the field in which I um, have always gravitated. Yeah. You were saying a bit before about your role in connecting people. How have you found politics especially? How have they kind of integrated into what you're doing? Like, do you think they could do anything more or, or has the response been kind of adequate? Well, the response in Australia from politics at the moment is never adequate. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, like what do you want to talk about? You know, which issue yeah. you want to look at? You know, yeah. I think a lot of us are disappointed, many disillusioned, but certainly disappointed with where politics are at the moment in Australia. Ashamed. Yeah, yeah it's a good, that's a, that's a stronger, better word. You know that I, I would agree with. Were you, yeah. were you that? Do you reckon you? I mean, I, I look at you, Julian. You're an artist. Artists are always expected to have a kind of a, a platform. Well, artists have a platform for for much longer than sports stars. Artists have been, I guess, active, engaged, and they use their platform. You know, since thousands of years ago, artists were making political statements in their work. I mean, I noticed you've been involved in all kinds of different auctions and and drives and uh, and movements. What do you find when you look at someone like Fozzie, do you feel like this is this is a kind of a voice that is kind of lacking in the mainstream of Australia? You Hell yeah. Know, the, the Hell activated... yeah. I want this guy to have a bigger microphone. I like yeah. listening to him talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want him being in, I want him having more power, mm. you know? I want people listening to him. So, and art is the one way of making a painting of him and getting that to the Archibald is the yeah. one way to do that. But, I mean, art, the nice thing, I'm a, I paint at Share Studio and we spent a lot of time talking about Art is not just paintings, it's life as well. It's, you know, t- paintings never right or wrong, mm-hmm. but it's, is there some weird tr- like search for truth and beauty? You yeah. know, not to get too wanky on this thing, but there is something deep that you look for either in yourself or out in the world and you reflect it. I think it was Nina Simone who said art, it's an artist's duty to reflect the times. Yep. And she got more political as, as her career went on and as her voice grew, like her power grew, she had a responsibility to talk about what was happening. And I think you see a lot of artists doing that as well. And even if it's not overtly political, there's still an underpinning of some pursuit of something more profound and more beautiful in the world. And that's mm-hmm. why we make stuff. That's our drive. And that's what we're always trying to create. But even mm-hmm. though we never really get there, we keep searching and searching. I think that's why art's so nice is that uh, there's no right or wrong, but you just, you just got to keep asking questions and questions. Every mark is a decision. Every not making a mark is a decision. And you're constantly sitting there going, what the hell am I doing? Like, what does it mean? And what, what am I trying to say? And why would I even put this? Why do I have the right to put this out into the world? Like, yeah. what am I? And hang on someone's wall or make someone stand in front of it and say, that's worth having a look at. It'll yeah. make you think differently. But we paint, we exist in a bit in our brain that's so non-concrete and non-linear. But there seems to be some answers in there for us, which is why we're all so addicted to it once yeah. you get on the roll, once you get on a roll with it. So that's the kind of arena that I'm used to being in. But it's that most artists are pretty, you sit down with them and they're pretty connected into broader issues of life and yep. what's right or wrong and what should we be doing and who's letting the team down. Yep. And, you know, that's, they're, they're conversations you have. Of the now, of the yep. now. And, and, and it's different. Whereas, I mean, when you were playing football, mm. 
you would have to win a football match. Mm. Whereas you're saying every mark, everything you're doing could be... I mean, back in the day, they didn't even take a knee, you know? Like, mm. taking a knee now is like, a, 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 I guess, a mid-match way of being political or having making mm. a statement. But it was... Really, it was... People had to kind of, short of someone like Ali, who'd run a good press conference and mm-hmm. condemn the Vietnam War. Yeah, great. Now it's it's mostly people finish their career. David Pocock, Fozzie, mm-hmm. Sonny Bill Williams. Mm-hmm. You can really ramp that up. Whereas you guys can do it your whole yeah. career. Well, we don't we mm. don't we don't get paid. Yeah, we don't work for anybody. Yeah, it's almost in our interest. The more we do make comments on the things that might be yeah. seen as left or whatever, mm. or that's actually helps us as artists because that's kind of our job is to th- chuck the question marks out there going, well, hang on a second, what's going on with that? Maybe we should look at it a different way or especially with the, the minorities having an actual voice, the arts is where they can have a loud voice. They get quite shut down in other, so many other aspects of life and media is a platform for them to have a way louder voice than they normally do. So we live in an environment where we encourage that, we're sort of, actually celebrate it and push each other to have more of a voice in search of truth you know and we get our money probably comes from chasing that in yeah. a way well That's your existence like, your existence as an artist is inherently political because uh you're not very well funded uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, unlike, and, unlike the uh the ais which mm, you entered yeah. as a 14 year old man yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, totally we've right. got no sponsors we got we don't have to no one rings us up and say hey you shouldn't yeah. have said that during the That's talk right. the other, the That's other true. week it's one yep. reason why i'm so fascinated you know and it's been great to get to know um and uh, Julian and other and other artists, just the different way of approaching life and of mm. seeing things yeah. is uh, coming out of sport is very very different. But there are to to your point, there are uh, you know there is an increasing push from athletes, high profile athletes all around the world now during their career uh, to make strong statements, particularly around racial equality. You mm. see all the Black Lives Matter stuff now. You know Lewis Hamilton yeah. and these mm. things. And uh, David uh, Pocock was really strong, you know, uh, as you'd be aware. But when he was playing, you know, they're the ones that, you know. And cover himself detractors. Yeah, detractors yeah. and, you know, marriage equality and, you know, and all of, and, and of course, um, you know, climate action and so on. You know, when I was a Socceroo, I was a member of the Republic and I spoke pre-referendum, you know, with Malcolm at uh, the town hall with a couple of other athletes at that time. And that didn't go down too well in the game. But I was politically (laughs) active. But today, when more athletes speak up, which I strongly support, it provides more space for others to do likewise. The idea that you got in trouble for endorsing an Australian Republic... Which uh, is about, like... (laughs) As kind of light as you can go on on a social issue in, in this country, it's like let's remint all of our currency. Let's <laughs> take her off the constitution. Yeah. Get rid of her. Exactly. Yeah, it's ridiculous, isn't it? But Fozzie, you are a uh, you know an example of walking in two worlds now with um, mm. you know your advocacy work and of course your mm. your your commentary work. There's still the work you do where you sit down, you talk football, you're not talking mm. anything else. You, Jules have a similar kind of story of being a, um, I guess, you know, a, you're an example of the duality of man. You uh, came from the very... Confused, uh, you mean I'm confused? <laughs> yeah. Confused, you well, mean you, uh, I'm a little bit lost? You Is spent that before you're... the paintbrush you were holding a scalpel and still to this day you're actually a medical professional. Well, well day registered, it's... It no. makes sense, you know, the, the hand-eye. Hand-eye. Really good... Gloves, uh, still using gloves. Yeah. Still Connection using... from, uh, yeah. from your brain to your hands, mm. you know. I think so. It's almost like, you know, you, you've got two F1s going down your arms, <laughs> aren't you? 
Tell, tell us what oh, the man. surgeon to artist. That's a pretty kind of rare yarn. It's pretty easy to become a bum artist. Let me yeah. tell you. You just yeah. got to wake up and go right. I'm, a, I'm now going to go to a studio every day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, hard, the, the hard thing is yeah. keeping it rolling after yeah. 15, 20 years. Yeah. yeah. And still wanting to keep trying to you know push yourself to get better. But yeah, I went through out of high school. I was really good at painting and started selling my work when I was like 14, 15, and painted all night long in my in my um, bedroom mainly because I liked the smell of oil paints and terps back then. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't have the balls to be. I went to the career yeah. advisor when I was 18 and and he <laughs> said, oh, maybe you shouldn't do art. Only 1% are still practicing after they graduate and the average income is about 8 to 12 grand. And I'm like, I probably want to have kids one day. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I didn't have the balls to do it when I was 18. So like, and I went, You need a day job. It's like, Jesus oh, Christ. Yeah. I didn't say be a surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, I work in a pub or something or a cafe. <laughs> I know, I know. I know. <laughs> yeah. He really took that advice yeah. and became a surgeon. Well, the irony is, you know, I only got into medicine because I topped art in the HSC. Right. So I got, nice. the, I got the marks because I could paint so well. Yeah, right. And... So that, and then I st- did that for three years, and then quit, and went to art school overseas, and then realised art was too hard, and went back and finished med. Which, if you were put the work in, it's not was not impossible to pass yeah. it. I mean, I got through. It's yeah. not subjective. No, it's no, marks. No. <laughs> There's lots of bad doctors out there. <laughs> Subjectively, that was a good operation. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I stayed out of it. I didn't go. I didn't go. Sort of didn't work that much for a decade or two while I was um, running an art gallery and and trying to be a painter. You can't make paintings just one or two days a week. You got to go week day in day out mm. to actually grow and develop and get good. Basically, mm. you can't just do it every now and then. And then yeah, a few years ago, I got the opportunity to work with an old mate. I just help out, dude. I don't, I'm not a big. I'm low down in the team, mm-hmm. but I like it. I love being part of a team. And yeah. if something goes wrong, it's not. A, it's on my boss's head, not <laughs> Wait, me. Wait, so you're, still, you're, you're back in the in the. You're still registered. Still registered. Still holding a scalpel. Yeah, I help it's out. On, I help of out an evening. Friend. I help it's out a friend every now and then. His boss's insurance plan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But it's, you know what? It's been really. It's actually been really good for me to get out of the art world six or seven days a week. Yeah. Yep. And in terms of my identity, it's better and it's given me a, a lot more structure in terms of, I don't know, just not having to paint every bloody yep. day. And it, it, the paintings are never right and you're always kind of like questioning yourself mm-hmm. and um, the doubts only get bigger as you get better. So you just spent one or two days in there looking uh, at an open body. One day body. a week. Yeah. One day a week. One I go and help out, mate. The inside <laughs> of a human being will just take all those thoughts of it's doubts, doubts and heart out of your mind. Another another yeah, I'm not worried about I'm not worried yeah. about whether the white's a bit blue yeah. or pink that day. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right. I only have to be perfect one or two days a week. It's a lot more concrete. As long as it's not bleeding, I've done a great job. You know, <laughs> so own it up carefully. Um, yeah, I have, a very, so I have a pretty surreal mm-hmm. life at the moment and yeah. I'm, I'm lucky as all hell to have have it both but there's a grueling process as an artist you also you, 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 you it's terrifying showing your work i guess all artists in, in the same way the musicians walk backstage after a gig and they just drink all night because they kind of come down from this thing artists have to all that stuff you're slaving over in the studio you're talking about there you then have to put on the walls and all your family and friends come and look at it and you sit the there stuff we don't cut up and burn yeah yeah the stuff yeah, that yeah. leaves the sit studio there. yeah yeah the no. sweat pats is growing but COVID's been you. awesome we don't yeah. have to go to the openings anymore <laughs> yeah. yeah I can't tell you how good that is I mean <laughs> but then I shouldn't comply like we only have to turn up to an opening one day yeah a, a year yeah I've got to go and talk to people and stand in front of my work and yeah. say yep this is the best I can do at the moment <laughs> um, and so you just I could, I'm never going to complain about having to go like yeah. obviously it's i don't paint to stand in front of the paintings yeah. i paint 
for the paintings to do the talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, just that part. Of the, that's just part of the industry that you just. Uh, One nerve-wracking element, I'm, I reckon, for artists must be having to put it all on the line to ask some big shot soccer player to sit in front of you for an hour. Football, football. Sorry. Well, it's fun. It, like, like everything, like every single, I realised every time I've got into Archibald, it was never my idea to actually paint the subject. All right. Yeah. Which can, I can probably should. Example of your other. Of I probably other, shouldn't admit this, but it's just yeah. a lot of my life has just been right place right time mm-hmm. and so, and also going obviously if i don't want to paint the person there's no way i'm going to do it mm-hmm. so i say no to a lot of stuff but then when it feels <laughs> right i'm like damn but I'm, I'm not making a lot of the decisions they just things fall and you just run with them yep and if you love them you, st- you hang on to them for dear life you know so what i mean that's painted, how who have you painted previously before like daniel johns daniel johns um, oh you got that was actually in the promotional stuff for the archibald the yes big again the week before i was going to paint um paul ryan and then daniel johns has had a new album coming out and his manager bought some of my work and rang me up and said do you want to paint daniel johns i'm like hell yes i do <laughs> and i rang paulie up i was like paulie you've been bumped uh, and he's like you got daniel johns you haven't sat for someone in 14 years and I'm like, he's like yeah. you gotta do him i'm like yeah you know it i'm doing it and then i went that was like five days before well, he was, it was due he, he was paying good odds on sports bet too with daniel johns that year yeah, yeah it was great and yeah. then five days out from the archibald that was due i had a really good one of my best mates jasper is always like to start the archibald the week out because it's, it's a bit of a chook raffle if it doesn't get in you won't feel like you've wasted a whole month out of your practice and yes yeah, so i went up to daniel johns studio and i'm like out in the pouring rain in the middle of winter and like get your shirt off dude let's have a look mm-hmm. at all his tats and his muscles and i got his did quite a good painting of him and that's how that one got in and then the one I did Richard Flanagan mm-hmm. who's an absolute hero you know he's he's an incredible voice and I wish he had more of a microphone for Australia as well Big Batuta fan shout out Richard yeah. oh yeah, he, yeah. He's, I've never met anyone whose brain is, is and his heart are just like you both kind of I am just sit there in awe of both of them mm-hmm. and um, yeah, it was my wife Beige kept saying you've got it which he obviously yeah. loves his loves his work and said you've got to paint him and I'm like there's no way Richard's gonna I don't know the dude he's not gonna yeah. sit for me and so I think she just kept saying you emailing me I got his email from someone and I think I just one day I'm like okay hey, fine I'll email I just so she wouldn't say stop just to <laughs> yeah. you know tell her that I he'd said no and then he wrote back and got oh yeah no problems come down on Tuesday and then on Tuesday I'm knocking on his front door in Hobart going yeah. how how do I have the right to go and visit this yeah. dude and I have the right he hadn't sat for someone in 15 years yeah. Yeah. and he, he opens the door with his pet galah and I'm like Jesus Christ I better do a good painting of this guy. <laughs> so what do you do from there you go alright you on the chair over there yeah. I'm going to start bringing your stuff in well I think he's a bit hung over he said he was sick, but I'm pretty sure he was hungover. And we had lunch. And had, I think yeah. I tried to mention something about politics in Tasmania or the logging. And I, I realised I shouldn't have even gone anywhere near to discussing anything. Yeah. In the talk on. <laughs> I should have just shut up and listened. Yeah. But he was. He's, he's a great listener. Plan. He just he lets you talk, and you get nervous, and you keep talking more and more. <laughs> Is it easier to paint a bald head as opposed to a head of hair like Craig's? <laughs> Craig's way too handsome. He's, uh, he's annoying. He's the silver fox is not an yeah. easy thing to paint. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that Richard just be like, just do the dome and go. Well, he, said to, he actually said to me, he goes, don't make me look angry. And I'm like, 
but look at the photo. Look how angry you are. <laughs> I did a drawing of him in his book, in the front page of his book that I was reading. I'm like, he looked angry. I should have just put a big smiley face over yeah. the top of it. Abdul style. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. You're not yeah. angry. Yeah. But um, it's funny how it just that's the nice thing about the art world. I get I get opportunities to knock on these people's doors yeah. that I would never have. I still don't really have the right to, but yeah. the, I'm allowed to, it seems, so, which is really nice. So how did you two mm. meet? Oh, I think I'd been involved with a big um, project called um, All We Can't See, which was – the Nauru files. Uh, the Nauru files on yeah. the redacted files. And from that, I've been introduced to Fozzie. And so, that, so that was an art show where a lot of artists, correct me if I'm wrong, were, all went through the redacted files from the Nauru. Yeah, we were given a file yeah. or, or chose one that we yeah. wanted to make a painting out of. And then made a painting based on what they read, which was, yeah. mm-hmm. I imagine, horrifying at times. Yeah, it was. It was, it was. It, uh, horrible stories. Mm-hmm. And we tried to put them into a more visual languages to give them air, mm-hmm. to get Australia thinking about what was happening offshore while we're, you know, while we're making the grindies. What was yours? What did you do? Um, it was about fa- um, family that had drowned. So I painted a, I painted a space blanket. I was painting heaps of goon bags at the time. Yeah. And just a, a, a still life series. So I painted. So I painted these those space blankets that I've seen an image in the shock. Yeah, I've seen yeah. an image yeah. in in uh, one of the islands in Greece blanket. where they, yeah, yeah. they were all wrapped up in them. And I'd painted my wife in one, and and her mum is. I painted her in one for Archibald one year. Didn't get in. She's a, a political refugee out of Uganda. She yep. fled them in in the seventies. So I painted her in one already. So I just painted a, a space blanket next to a storm out in the ocean. Yeah. And just simple poetry. Yeah, simple. That was just visual yeah, poetry. All you can't see. Yeah, yeah. And then that toured yeah. around um, Sydney, Melbourne. Ariel did a great job touring that. She took it down to Adelaide to a labour conference. And that was one of the things that got the Medivac bill yep. passed. So that was how I met Foz out, out of that. Um, someone put us in contact and said, oh, do you want to help him out with his campaign? The hashtag game over mm, campaign. Mm, I'm like, good, we need we need a sports star, not a mm. talking about this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So okay. that's how it started. And you, we, would you say you were already on this? You were advocating on behalf of refugees before yeah. game over. What was? Well, what had happened before that? I think we met after the Hakim stuff, right? Yeah. 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 And then we sat down, and had lunch, and we talked about that. And what Hakim did, that campaign to get the kid back from Bangkok, yeah. was it gave me firstly a lot of guys on who were then in Port Moresby, had been in Manus, they got in touch during that. And they said two things. Look, we really support this and we want to see this kid out. But secondly, look, we're also here and we need your help. So can you just explain again, I mean, a lot of people would see, look at you, Fozzie, now as an advocate for refugees and asylum seekers. Mm -hmm. And actually a lot of people think that Hakim was what, what activated you, mm-hmm. what radicalised you, mm-hmm. what turned you into a voice mm-hmm. for, for all these people. Mm-hmm. Can you just kind of give a brief explanation as to what the, the situation Hakeem was mm-hmm. in and, and, mm-hmm. and when you popped your head up? Mm-hmm. So I had been working with refugee programs and refugee kids for probably 15 years prior. Mm-hmm. And I was working with Amnesty Australia on the Refugee Community Sponsorship Scheme, Mm -hmm. which is to work with government and all local councils around the country to resettle people here. And then Hakeem got in trouble. So what Hakeem essentially did was just provide me a bigger public platform Mm -hmm. to be able to do more. And it also was a kind of step out in terms of understanding what a public platform means. In other words, I I didn't realise I could do what I did. You know, I'd never done it. 
but this kid's life was in danger. He'd been tortured back in Bahrain and he was imprisoned in Bangkok and the Bahrain royal family, the king, wanted him back. He spoke out against him. So the Bahrain king found out, I think that they, we think that they had him monitored as a dissident in Australia. He was on a protection visa and they found out that he was going to, on his honeymoon to Bangkok. Right. He had to get a visa at the Thai embassy, I think it was in Melbourne. And shortly after he went in and applied for his visa, the Bahrain government was notified that he was going to be travelling. Yeah. And Bangkok are a bit more compliant with Bahrain. The two kings yeah. are very, very close. Like it was, um, very close. Interpol, they issued like... Um, That's how they do it. A red notice. Yeah. So, so the two kings, yeah. the one king asked the other king for him and the mechanism to repatriate many of these dissidents around the world, Saudi Arabia are really big on this. That's why they gave something like 50 million bucks last year in funding to Interpol. Yeah. Okay, to fund these this system is because they use it to put people on red notices around the world to get them back. Yeah, right. Okay, and that's what they tried to do with him. People just, I didn't know him, and people just came to me and said, look, you're one of the most prominent people in this particular sport, and... He, he was a footballer. Yeah. He was a footballer. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, so he, used to, he played for Bahrain under 23s, so yeah. he was a very talented young player, and he, in, in the Arab Spring, he went to the street uh, in their peaceful democracy protests and the government and royal family they said look um, particularly the son the prince uh, who was the head of the olympic movement there and all these he went on television and said anyone who participated in this this we are an island you will not be able to leave and you know we'll get you they picked out high profile particularly sports people Bahrainis who'd been on the street, so they took all of the news footage and they circled people who they knew. There was basketballers, there was the there was the captain of their national football team. Hakim was one young player. Uh, there was uh, judo walkers and all of these people, and they showed it on TV. Many of them said, "Look, you're going to know we're coming for you. We're coming for you." They went to the house, they picked them up, or they found them wherever they fled to, and they put him in jail. And he was tortured for about five months. So they sat him on a chair. And they got a metal pipe and they were smashing his legs, uh, his thighs, and saying, we're going to break your legs so you never play football again. And then they would stand him up after so many minutes of this. Obviously, he couldn't take any more. They would stand him up, walk him around in pain so the blood would go back into the legs. They could sit him down and go again. And this happened over a period of many months. So then he fled. Uh, he ultimately ended up in Australia. He got protection here, rightly. And when he went back to Bangkok, he thought he was going to have a lovely honeymoon. And sadly for him, he didn't realise that the Thai king has been very close to the Bahraini king for a long time. Yeah. In fact, yeah. loaned a lot of money from him when he was young. And one of the ways they operate and, and interact with each other is that Thailand have very often sent people back to Bahrain, dissidents. And you got him back. Well, a lot of there was a, a lot, lot of people, people got him back. back. But the whole the movement that came from Australia, the grassroots yeah. kind of movement, got him back to Australia. Yes. And what's what's his go now? He's oh, he's, he's having up. a great time. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah, they, yeah. Um, Just not that keen to go back to Thailand. <laughs> <laughs> he's, not going to no. he's been once. He doesn't have to go again. You know, <laughs> <laughs> he can go that's to the Kimberley right. next time. You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah travel domestically. Exactly. That's yeah. our advice. What advice? It's a beautiful country, brother. Just got yeah, there's plenty to see here. Yeah. So he's great. He has a new house. His child, his son, is about nine months old now. Yep. Elia. And he's, uh, he's working, he's having a, a wonderful time. And that was, I guess, you know, that was when we started seeing Fozzie mm. running press conferences that weren't related yeah, to the world exactly. game. Yeah, I that's mean, right. 
yeah, well, not not necessarily not strictly related to the world game. No. So you, you, that kind of got the ball rolling there. Yeah. From, from then, how does you know? As you said before, you're a, you're an Australian wog. How yeah. does it feel to then become this voice for high profile? Well, not even high profile for the, for the unheard, I guess. Mm. How does it feel then to be kind of swung into that? You're on the multicultural mm. council board. You're, mm. you're doing all this kind of stuff. What do you mm. view yourself as now? Mm. Do you, you're no longer a footballer, really. No. You're an advocate. You're, a, mm. I guess, um, activist. Yeah. Mm. I just, I don't know. Everything's changed. Everything's, yeah. but I, but I do like change. I think that we have to keep moving anyway. Um, you know, I love the game of football. But I approach it in a very different way to what I did many years ago. I mean, that, that was a process that's already underway. I mean, when we did the Russia World Cup in 2018, we went to that World Cup and I explained to SBS, look, you know, all of the human rights abuses that are curling here are part of this tournament. And so you start to see sport through a very different lens. Yeah, right. So we started that World Cup for the first time by opening up and saying, and me saying, listen, Lucy, you know, to be honest with you, I feel uncomfortable being here. And, you know, I had to question whether it's right to actually come here and, and support a country that's using sport to burnish its image, you yeah. know, and for political capital around that. So it was very different discussions. That we, we had the head of or one of the directors of Amnesty Russia on our coverage, for example, and that was quite confronting for a lot of people. It was confronting for some people in SBS, and yeah. um, but you know that was kind of my journey and bringing along, you know, our sports coverage into that zone. And to uh, Julian's point earlier, culturally, that's not uh, that's a, a little bit abnormal for sport mm-hmm. because while your art, Julian, is very much predicated on broader society and or, and every social issue is in your purview because you're you're expressing it, you're coming to it somehow, that's not sport. Mm-hmm. That's kind of being rare sports people, whether it's through their own culture, through their own ethnicity, through their own religion, through their own experiences, that it differs. But sport itself has tried to per- propagate this notion that it exists outside of society. Yep. And that it, it's not interested in it, you shouldn't be interested in it, and in fact, the worst, we certainly don't want you talking about it. Yep. So look at the Black Power salute in the 1968 Olympics. Yep. You know, you had uh, Billie Jean King, gender equality in the late 60s, early 70s, and so there's been great activists in sport through history, but they've been ostracised, excluded, and very often uh, yeah. smashed. The great one was uh, 2017 NRL Grand Final when uh, <laughs> the NRL decided to bring Macklemore to sing Same yeah. Love at yeah. a halftime entertainment. Peter Dutton, Tony Abbott come out and go, if they get to have the pro vote yes song, uh-huh. someone should sing a song representing vote no as well. Like, yeah. uh, bounce it out. Yeah. <laughs> but you're not yeah. going to find anyone who sings a song. So. <laughs> At the AFL, we're going to get meatloaf. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or Kid Rock. And they go, yeah. Totally. So politics, right. politics should stay out exactly. of school. And yeah. we're like, mate, last year you had Jimmy Barnes singing right. Kaysan. Exactly. You know, the story about getting conscripted and having your life yeah. ruined by going to Vietnam. Like, that's yeah. a pretty political song. Yeah. Exactly. Know? And then when what? Was it Rugby Union when they want to take a knee? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and Or was it Rugby League? Something was happening in rugby league and so he calls the chair of rugby league he makes a personal call and says listen I don't think oh, I'm not was, comfortable yeah. with that and all yeah, of a sudden no. rugby pull it right well, yeah. The, the young black kids yeah but sports got nothing to do with politics <laughs> and then when you need a bit of a push you need you know you yeah. need a bit of a voter push or you need a bit of the, the cool you know real ocker Aussie yeah. you need to make sure that you get to a sporting match and yeah. get in the change room and scallop yeah. 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 yeah all this <laughs> stuff so the, the, the sport's always been used of course that's clear I mean 1995 rugby union world cup Mandela 
You know, yeah, that was exactly. uh, totally. the end of the apartheid. That's that was right. a pretty big yeah. moment. Kathy Freeman, 2000 yeah. Olympics. Yeah. Six years before, she nearly loses a career for carrying Aboriginal flag. Yeah. When sport thinks that it's a good idea, it's now cool to do yeah. that, we're going to use her at the Sydney 2000 Olympics. Mm-hmm. But, you know, only say enough, you know, don't go too far. So sport likes to radicalise people who are going to speak too much about socialism. Yeah. So, look, I, I work with Tom and University. I'm an adjunct professor at the moment. This is really the field, my, my field of interest, yeah. is capturing what's happening in Black Lives Matter, capturing what happened in Hakeem. And uh, Hakeem's a great example, but basically encouraging athletes and talking to young sports people who, who I call sporting citizens and telling them that you actually have a responsibility to do something here. If the world is burning, it's no good going and throwing a football. Mm-hmm. It's no good throwing a rugby ball or kicking a ball. At some point, you're going to have to cross over into society. Yeah. Okay. And every citizen has that responsibility. And, and just because there's a white line and you're going to step over and play tennis does not absolve you, A, of a responsibility as a citizen, but B, and more importantly, it actually is not a barrier to speaking yeah. out. Yeah, right. And mm-hmm. have you finding much success? Have you, have you had these conversations with the young pl- athletes? Uh, yes, but not to a great degree. Yes, I'm right. I'm writing a course that'll be released for Torrens University later in the year about okay. sport and humanity, and it and it essentially asks the question about you know what is sports responsibility. Mm-hmm. There's a bit of a social trend though. I think around the world, you see business activists now coming out a lot more. I, I understand even in sport, a lot of it's performative. We all get that, right? But you know, look at um, Cannon Brooks, for example. Yeah. You know, the Atlassian dudes. All of a sudden, you know, it's a very different generation. Yeah. Of and it's nothing for them to speak up on whatever they whatever they think. Well, that's true. Yeah. But then the last generation, you know, we would say that financially. Then there's yeah. no. But the last generation of Australian billionaires, if you like, were very much establishment. Yeah. Okay. You know, we work inside the system. We're not saying crap. We're not. You know, I mean, when they certainly could yeah. never be characterised as activists in any respect. So that's changed. Well, yeah. I guess they're just richer well, now. They don't need to worry about an, a, well, yeah. a, a relationship yeah. with an Australian <laughs> MP. Like, <laughs> yeah. if you go back like 10 or 20 years, like like some of the richest people in the country came here as refugees. That's true. Mm. Yeah, I think at one point it was four of six yeah. of the richest people, all billionaires, were refugees, including, I think, I'm not sure, but it might be Trigoboff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Certainly it was Lowy yeah. and others. Uh, Richard Pratt. I think he came I think here you're as a child right. from, uh, from, I think you're right. from Hungary. Yes, which, think, which yeah. you know, is again, is just one of, the, one of the many, many elements of this puzzle as to how Australia fi- can possibly find ourselves in a position yeah. where we actually torture them. Yeah. You yeah. know, there's so many ironies. The fact that we were a prison island and now we create prison islands. Yeah. That's crazy stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And the fact that, you know, we colonise by boats and then anyone who comes by boat you know, is a criminal. Mm. I mean, it's just like you couldn't. Come on, Boggles. It's so <laughs> nonsensical. It's just right. crazy stuff. So, I saw some interesting numbers. You you've been working with Sonny Bill Williams of uh, Electrocution Shoulder Fame. Sonny Bill Williams when he when he went over to Toulon to play a match of rugby union, the Frenchman that he uh, Sonny Bill put a Canterbury Bankstown. Bulldog stop tackle on a French rugby union play, and the man's quote was, "It felt like I had been electrocuted." <laughs> so you've, you've I'm sure it would, by the way. I'm sure it would. And he's a boxer. He's a rugby oh, yeah. union player. He's an All Black. Yeah. He's a, a world champion. You know, a rooster. Rooster. He's a multiple premiership Bulldog. footballer. Um, what's it like? Can't play cricket though. Can't play cricket. No. Can't bat. Can't bowl. Can he paint? <laughs> what's he like? What's he like with a scalpel? <laughs> there were some numbers you guys were putting mm. out there. I remember you were talking about the money spent on yeah. offshore detention. Mm-hmm. I actually saw 
Sonny Bill say, where's the money gone, bro? They did. Uh, in Scott. To, yeah. to Scott, where's the money gone? Yeah. What kind of numbers did you guys kind of come st- stumble across there when you started looking at all this? Yeah, so recently you would have seen that when we went over to Queenstown for mm-hmm. the bilateral meeting between Jacinda Ardern and Scott Morrison. So was, uh, we took the opportunity to go and make a bit of noise there. We asked to get in the meeting. We obviously didn't expect that was going to happen. But we, uh, we wanted to talk about the new New Zealand deal that's been on the table for eight years for uh, successive... New Zealand governments have wanted to resettle 150 refugees from offshore. Mm-hmm. There's still uh, 240 as we speak now. And that's and so the, all of this would have been behind us four years ago if that was the case. And three successive governments, prime ministers in Australia, Abbott, Turnbull and Morrison, have all said no, haven't accepted that deal. So what we, we went over there to say, listen, you have to get these people off. It's eight years, for Christ's sake. I mean, you know, at some point you've got to, you know, we have to bring this to an end. Anyway... He was making the point that in the recent budget, there's $800 million of taxpayer money being spent on 240 people offshore this year. $800, $800 million. million. Brilliant fucking policy. Over $3 million. How many people? Sorry, are we going how many? 240. <laughs> I think it's $3.3 million for this year per refugee. Okay. Are we doing it again? A, are they doing it again this year? So that's this year, right? That's this year. So that's in the year that we need to really tighten our belt because we need to get out of this so-called recession. I we're in, oh, maybe they think we're in a surplus, though. Maybe they got yeah. a bit of free cash flating. They forgot to move the. They forgot to move the. The six was it a sixty billion dollar uh, miscalculation? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, no, yeah, no, it was twice as cheap as they thought it was. <laughs> and, like, and they were like, this is great news. It's like, what, like, what else have you fucked up <laughs> over the years? More money for refugees. Uh, detainment of refugees. Yeah, yeah. that's right. That's and that's something like 50 million on the Billow family alone, right? Yeah. But 800, and so there was a piece recently, I think it was in The Guardian, that said the company that the private contractor, and so we've privatised all this out, right? So there's all this profiteering and gouging going on, and there's yeah. literally been hundreds of millions of dollars of profit mm-hmm. from our pockets to companies to torture innocent refugees. Yeah. That is a fact. Mm-hmm. So there was a story that said this company allegedly is paying locals $8 an hour and is charging us $75 an hour. Per, for the wage. Yeah. Wow. And so the company locals Moresby, yeah, Moresby, Moresby. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the company that was paid to run the detention center up on Manus, the head office of that company yeah. was was a beach a house chef. on Kangaroo Island. That's right. Uh, yeah, they're called Paladin. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah. um. People said, "Oh, well, I think it was a closed tender process." From my from memory, that yeah. meant it was just one person put it. You know, one yeah. company put in a quote. They accepted that. That was literally billions of dollars. And so, some yeah. people in the media, thankfully, said, "Well, we wouldn't mind going and speak to these people." Mm. You know, yeah. let, let's see what they're about. You know, how they're doing this. <laughs> uh, they, you know, they called them out. They couldn't get them. So they went and they yeah. found a tiny little beach shack where it was registered to in a field. Yeah. You know, next to the ocean somewhere. No human in sight. What I don't understand, uh, having uh, the last year after year watching it, we all know it. Yeah. I don't speak to a single person that it goes, it's a bunch of bullshit. Like, yeah. it's shame, 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 Darren Hinch, yeah. all over it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Year after year, everyone, I don't admit it. And then, yet it still rolls on. I mean, mm-hmm. is it just, I just can't, I'm still trying, and am I partly responsible? Should yeah. I have done more? I was talking to Fozzie over Christmas and I heard Fozzie was saying to me, he goes, I think I need to get arrested. Yeah, yeah. Like that's where his headspace is at. Yeah. I'm like, like, 
what role do we all have? How much yeah. do we have to all say, oh, we don't want this mm. for before it ends? I just don't well, it's I, an interesting I can't get my head around because, it. You know, the, the Iraq war, a good example of, you know, millions of people across the world marched against the Iraq war, it still happened. Mm. What do you think, that we, we all know what the interests were there. Mm-hmm. What yep. do you think the interests are here where, where $800 million can be spent? Like what is mm-hmm. to be gained? Mm-hmm. It's not like we're draining oil out of Moresby. Like what, no. what is to be gained from? Well, it's three things. One is Australia has a history of yellow peril yep. and we're very easily convinced and it's really dangerous that we can very easily be swayed as a country to mistreat. And this is the really great example. We'll, we're prepared to torture people if convinced that they're coming here to do something, mm-hmm. either to come and get you. And, and so that's why they sold all Marry of the- Marry your daughters. Marry, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. Right. Well, that's the second one I'll get to. But, you know, so you're talking about, you know, criminals, terrorists, blah, 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 blah. blah. Okay. Uh, complete lies, but very easily triggers Australia. And triggers voters. Yeah. Triggers voters and triggers many people in the country, and that's mm. part of our history, okay? There's a really wonderful doco I'd encourage all of your listeners, they've probably already seen, Admission Impossible. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a fabulous documentary that goes into the history of immigration. The mm. first piece of uh, policy, the first act in 1901 under the new federation was the Immigration Restriction Act. That was the white Australia, white European people to come and keep everyone out. Mm -hmm. In fact, get rid of Chinese, get rid of any other blacks who happen to be in the country. And that, as we know, that went to the early 70s, to Whitlam, right? So we we have this as part of our psyche. And if you have, you know, a very large part of the national media and News Limited played a very significant role in this, in what is largely propaganda, you know, convincing Australians that these people are something they're not, it's very easy to turn. And, we, and it, it's easy to turn many countries. We've seen that in history. It's very dangerous. But Australia, we have this We have this in our history. Mm-hmm. I think it's something we really need to overcome. The second part is racism, mm-hmm. okay, because the first question is, the only question is, would we be doing this to, you know, white people from Britain or US? Well, as Barnaby Joyce said, the new deputy, the new yeah. acting prime minister said... Those little girls probably wouldn't have spent that long on Christmas Island if their names were Jane and Sally. That's exactly what he said. And I thought, bloody hell. Barnaby, Jesus. It's going to be a problem for Scott Morrison. I I looked at the name Barnaby. I thought, that that was really absolutely spot on, right? He didn't name it, but what he said is, okay, this is racist. And he's absolutely right. So that underpins a great deal of this. Mm -hmm. Well, it underpins all of it, but it's a very significant factor. And the last factor is that there's been votes in it. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so when you put all of that mix and then you put the predominance of the media who have wanted to, you know, whether it's support uh, certain ideologies or, you know, whatever, whatever their motivation is, has played a very significant role in this. We're in a very, very, very bad place. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the reason I fight so hard for it is. You know, I, I I mean, I sat next to Les Murray, who, you know, people smugglers got Les's family in from Hungary, you know, here in the 50s, right? So I have, you know, very long-term personal friends who actually are refugees. But more than that, I just think that this goes to the very essence of who we are. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, along with First Nations, stolen generation and, and the atrocities that have gone on there, I see these people, including, you know, just this morning, um, Julian met Moz and Farhad, the two Kurdish refugees who have become very close friends of mine who got out of Mitre and Mantra some months ago. They're both artists, singers. They're they're, they're in town for a a concert at the uh, Sydney Town Hall. I see them as incredibly important cultural figures in Australia. 
Mm-hmm. I don't just see them as refugees who, okay, it's good now that they're out. Mm-hmm. I see them as people who can speak truth to Australia about the depths to which we descended when given that climate, given the trigger of uh, 9-11, given the environment for people to then push us as a country into a really dark area, these guys really represent that. And so I'm committed now not just to getting all the others out and get their freedom, but actually to making these people well-known in Australia. We've got a film coming out soon. It's called Freedom is Beautiful Mm -hmm. with our mate and Julian's great mate, Angus MacDonald, the artist. And the reason for that is to get it into schools, get them in front of people. I want them on a prime television. I want Australia to know who these two great human beings are because I believe fundamentally, like this is where we started. When I put them in front of Australians, I think this policy is going to end Mm -hmm. because they know the people and they can't look in their eyes, hear the suffering and hear the story and possibly continue to do this as a country. Yeah. Well, I just guess in, in the scheme of things, we're lucky this little white boy from Lismore has been uh, <laughs> spent enough time around people from different parts of yeah. the world. And, and of course, he's uh, everything everything that you do, um, you, you give a voice to, and Julian the same. Painting, uh, Fozzie, it's, uh, it's all part of, uh, I guess, one big great mm. push that I guess we'll be seeing in the next couple of months. What would you say the name of that? Uh, doc- Doco. The film is called Freedom is Beautiful. Yep. And it tracks the life of these guys, why they fled, but particularly delves into how they suffered, how art and music was their resistance, and now shows them on the outside and talks about this this concept of freedom that, uh, as Australians, we take far too lightly. Okay, and Julian, next year you'll be painting Sonny Bill Williams for the 2022 <laughs> Archibald Prize, you reckon? I don't know, maybe I'll paint Fuzz again. Maybe <laughs> yeah, make it easy. Yeah, charm. <laughs> or even Barnaby. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, new, uh, yeah. The, new, uh, the new voice. The new Fuzzy, Barnaby Joyce. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us today, Jeremy. It was, uh, it was yeah. an interesting yarn, but, you know, kind of veering between art and sport. And um, I guess, you know, as we've learned, you've got more in common with each other. Than, than most people would think. I do think you play one minute of a State of Origin match, you kind of get paid the equivalent of an Archibald prize. But, <laughs> uh, you know, I and guess... <laughs> if, if you win the Archibald, you've got to give half of that to the federal government because they've got bills to pay, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> Big ones. Yeah, we just learn about them. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us today, Julian. Thanks for joining us today, Fozzie. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks.